Hello and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode six of Optimal, the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about inflammation. But instead of focusing on the usual markers of inflammation, the things that you probably are very aware of, HSCRP, ferritin, those sorts of things, instead of doing that, we're going to be diving into the world of cytokines. This is a topic that's very topical right now, given all of the information surrounding adverse impacts of COVID-19 and the cytokine storm. And we'll be joined later in the program by Beth Ellen DeLulio. Beth does a lot of the research for Optimal DX, and she's going to be talking with me about some of the research on the biomarkers. And we'll also be going into sort of what to do about everything towards the end of that as well. But I want to do now is I want to give us a brief discussion on inflammation and then talk a little bit about the background on the cytokines, and then we'll dive into the biomarkers as well. So. As we always do, we have a ton of posts on our blog. So go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. And we've got tons of blog posts that are related to this particular topic. So a lot of the research that we've covered is cited in those documents. So please go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. If you really like the blog, you can go ahead and subscribe. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe as well. So anyway, let's dive into inflammation, the fire inside, a little brief overview. So inflammation refers to signs, symptoms, and cellular actions that occur in a complex response to a number of different things that are happening within the body. So infection, injury, trauma, overuse, toxins, or radiation exposure. These can all cause inflammation. And technically, inflammation is a defensive mechanism. Now, I think we're all probably very aware of the signs and symptoms. These will include swelling, edema, redness, warmth, pain, stiffness, immobility. But internally, we also have oxidative stress, potential for tissue damage, and definitely loss of function. How do we know which conditions are associated with inflammation? Well, pretty much anything that ends in itis, I-T-I-S, is inflammatory in nature, arthritis, hepatitis, gastritis, as well as other chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, and cancer. These all have inflammation as part of their sort of condition. It isn't important in the early stages of wound healing and immune response to infections. Seriously, I don't think we would want to turn inflammation off because it can be very, very protective. However, prolonged chronic inflammation can be extremely detrimental. So chronic inflammation may not be as symptomatic or obvious as acute inflammation that occurs in response to an injury or an infection, but it can be just as damaging because it sort of can be quite silent as well. So both infectious and non-infectious factors can trigger inflammation, stimulating inflammatory cells 
such as adipocytes and macrophages to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines, kind of the topic of the day. Once an inflammatory cascade is activated, its prolongation may cause damage and subsequent disease in various tissues. Brain, heart, intestinal tract, kidney, liver, lung, pancreas, reproductive system. And research suggests that impaired autophagy, the lysosomal degradation and clearing of cellular debris from the body, can also contribute to chronic inflammation. So autophagy is an interesting process. It's how the body cleans and cleanses itself by going out and grabbing cellular debris, denatured proteins, damaged organelles. So that process, a very, very important process, can actually contribute to inflammation. In our blog, we talk about the etiology of inflammation. We compare the non-infectious versus the infectious factors. And so you can go over there and read a little bit about that. What I want to talk about right now are some of the diseases that are associated with inflammation. There are many, many of these, but some of these you may not be so aware of. Hypertension, for instance, is kind of an inflammatory process. It has inflammation associated with it. Diabetes, depression even, COVID-19, definitely add that one to the list. Cardiovascular disease, all autoimmune diseases, ankylosing spondylitis. So kind of the biggies would be things like rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, Parkinson's disease, heart failure, atherosclerosis, Alzheimer's, cancer, osteoporosis, age-related macular degeneration. And all of these are associated with what they call cytokine dysregulation, NF-kappa B inflammation pathways and that sort of thing. So We cover a lot of that in the blog as well, so please go on over. I want to talk now a little bit about something that I first heard of with Dr. Moss, Dr. Jeffrey Moss, if you're not familiar with him, with Moss Nutrition. He talked about this whole concept of inflammaging. He talked about that about 10 years ago, so definitely was on the cusp of something new. So aging has been associated with a perpetual inflammatory cascade that involves a whole load of these cytokines and interleukins. So I'm going to name a few here. You'll probably become great friends with these by the time we're finished. But interleukin-1-alpha, interleukin-6, NF-kappa-B, these are all part of that uh, perpetual inflammatory cascade that is associated with aging. Inflammaging refers to chronic, low-grade, systemic inflammation associated with aging but is not caused by an infectious agent. So this is an age-related cytokine dysregulation can contribute to chronic diseases. We've named a few just a few moments ago, Alzheimer's, atherosclerosis, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, cancer. So what are some of the sources of this inflammation? Well, buildup of cellular debris, microbial byproducts and toxins, some of which come from the gut or our oral cavity. We hear about sort of this microbial balance that we have in all these different areas of our body. Well, the gut and the oral cavity may have microbial byproducts that can contribute to this inflammation. Mitochondrial activation of some of the things called inflammasomes, cellular senescence, immunosenescence with decreased adaptive immunity, increased innate immunity, increased activation of coagulation. So these are all some of the things that can cause this inflammation. Also in the blog, we talk about a lot of the biomarkers of inflammation. Now, later on with Beth, we're going to be going through some of these, but these are the ones that aren't necessarily cytokine related. We have asymmetric dimethyl arginine or ADMA, basophils, ceruloplasmin, total cholesterol, eosinophils, ESR, favorite HSCRP or C-reactive protein, iron, ferritin, fibrinogen. So a lot of these biomarkers are actually associated with inflammation. So some of our takeaways here, inflammation is a defense mechanism triggered by pathogens, toxins, radiation, et cetera. 
short-term inflammation is beneficial, while prolonged chronic inflammation is detrimental. Persistent inflammation is associated with many chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and neurodegenerative diseases. And the inflammatory cascade is complex and can become perpetual. And that's that talk that we were looking at in terms of inflammaging. Now, I want to switch focus here before we jump into biomarkers. And this is to focus our attention on a quite a specific inflammatory biomarker group called cytokines. So cytokines are an interesting group of molecules. They're basically messengers that facilitate immune function and take part in either pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, and or allergic responses. They can have an effect on the cells that produce them, cells close to them, or cells far away. So they are produced locally in tissues, and they can have wide-ranging systemic effects. They can be named for the cells that produce them or their actions. For instance, monokines produced from monocytes, lymphokines from lymphocytes, chemokines from chemotactic action, and interleukins are produced by one leukocyte with an effect on another leukocyte. However, there is an overlap where one cytokine may perform several functions or functions may change depending on the target cells. So that's quite interesting. So we'll be talking about some of these specifically interleukin-6, interleukin-1, TNF-alpha, and those sorts of things as well. We can't have a conversation with cytokines without looking at Th1, Th2, and T helper cells. So helper T cells express what are called CD4 cell surface molecules and are divided into Th1 and Th2 and therefore produce Th1 and Th2 type cytokines which must strike a dynamic balance in order to maintain our homeostasis. So I'm going to kind of go through a little bit of a list here on Th1 cytokines versus Th2. Th1 cytokines are primarily pro-inflammatory. They do have action within the body to kill off things like intracellular parasites. They unfortunately do promote autoimmune reactions. And Th2 cytokines help to balance out Th1 immune response. These promote more of an IgE and eosinophilic allergic reaction. So things like interleukin-4, 5, and 13 can actually be anti-inflammatory. And something we will talk about later on in the biomarker sections is interleukin-10. This is kind of an anti-inflammatory cytokine. Excess Th2 cytokines may actually inhibit Th1's antimicrobial action. Remembering Th1 cytokines are there to kind of kill off intracellular parasites as well. So in general, Th1 facilitates what's called cell-mediated immunity. Th2 cells facilitate humoral and or allergic responses. So we're going to go through some of the sources of specific cytokines. I'm not going to go through all of them. These are all on the blog if you want. I think there's something like 27 or 28 different interleukins. But I want to touch base in on just a few of these. So the ones that are more of clinical significance, because we do pay a little bit more attention to them in a few minutes when we start talking about biomarkers. So we'll talk about interleukin-1 beta, one of the key mediators of the inflammatory response to physical stress, high levels associated with anxiety, panic disorders, and cardiovascular disease. And these typically are produced by macrophages and monocytes. We also have interleukin-3. These are T cells and stem cells functions as a multi-lineage colony stimulating factor. Interleukin-4, these are CD4 T cells at Th2. These synthesized interleukin-4 acts on both B and T cells. It is a B cell growth factor, 
causes IgE and Ig1 isotope selection, causes Th2 differentiation, and promotes mast cell proliferation in vivo. So again, can be quite anti-inflammatory, helps the B cell differentiation, things like that. One of the most common ones that you'll probably hear about is interleukin-6. Interleukin-6 made or synthesized or main source is macrophages, T-cells, and adipocytes. It is pro-inflammatory and is associated too with the production or the synthesis of C-reactive protein as well. Interleukin-10, Th2 cells produce interleukin-10. Its principal targets are Th1 cells, can be quite uh, anti-inflammatory and inhibits the formation of pro-inflammatory cytokines as well. TNF-alpha, produced by macrophages, natural killer cells, is pro-inflammatory, produces cytokines, causes cell proliferation, apoptosis, anti-infections, and things like that. So these are just some cytokines that we'll be paying attention to when we're talking about them from a biomarker and a laboratory perspective. So ultimately, cytokines are complex. They can be produced by and have effects on a variety of tissues. They can have pro and anti-inflammatory effects, can work together to upregulate or downregulate other cytokines, and some may exert pro and anti-inflammatory effects depending on the signaling pathways. So I want to talk a little bit now about the cytokine storm, or what we call unbridled inflammation, because this is really important, because this is a major part of the COVID-19 response that a lot of people are experiencing, at least those that are having an adverse uh, reaction. So the resolution of inflammation is just as important as its initiation. So early inflammation can help fight pathogens, clear damaged tissues. However, prolonged inflammation can cause cellular damage, leading to organ compromise. Local inflammation can be beneficial as it increases temperature, facilitates blood flow, mobilizes white blood cells, plasma proteins, sends warning pain signals to the brain. So all of these really important things that are very essential for as us as human beings to recover from things like a cut or a fall or broken bone, that side of thing. However, when we have an uncontrolled, prolonged systemic immune response, this can lead to what's called a cytokine storm. So the cytokine storm is this recruitment of aggressive immune cells and an inflammatory cascade that contributes to tissue and organ damage, far beyond the sort of the helpful things that we saw what we just talked about with uh, local inflammation. Cytokine storm can have a wide variety of manifestations with the cardiovascular system, the cutaneous system, gastrointestinal, hematological, neurological consequences. Its severity could be categorized as mild, moderate, severe, and life-threatening. And severe cytokine storm can be characterized by markedly pro-inflammatory cytokines, things like interleukins, the chemokines, the interferons, the tumor necrosis factors, can all get produced and they kind of like a cascade because one will precipitate the activation of the other and we start getting this manifestation of massive inflammation, tissue damage and things like that. So the cytokine storm and its manifestation have been observed in severe cases of coronavirus disease, global pandemic that has taken millions of lives worldwide. Both interleukin-6 and interleukin-10 can be elevated, reflecting the cytokine battle that rages in this devastating viral disease. In one study of hospitalized COVID-19 patients, an interleukin-6 cutoff of 9.16 picograms per mil was used to diagnose severe COVID-19. One patient with what were considered moderate symptoms upon admission had initial elevated interleukin-6 of 24.6 picograms per mil, interleukin-10 of 25.6, 
and CRP of 19.3. That patient died within 14 days of admission. So knowing how to measure and read these cytokines, knowing how to read them when the patients come in, obviously, as functional medicine practitioners, we're not necessarily dealing with these severe chronic cases, or I guess acute cases of COVID-19. But being aware of this is an important part. So elevated pro-inflammatory cytokines correlate with what's called acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, A-R-D-S, in severe COVID-19. All right, so let's now move beyond kind of the biochemistry and the metabolism. I'm joined by Beth Allen DeLulio in Florida. Hi, Beth. Hi, hi. So we want to move, Beth, beyond kind of like the theoretical, and now let's dive into sort of the practical aspects of looking at cytokines. And I know you've done a lot of research and background info on the inflammatory cytokines, inflammatory proteins, CRP, abnormal activation of certain enzymes, you know, COX-2, SOD, glutathione peroxidase. A lot of these may actually serve as biomarkers of disease. And as a company that ODX is really looking at biomarkers and how can we use biomarkers to help prevent disease, maybe we could just dive in a little bit and look at the clinical measurement of these types of cytokines. I think the important thing, obviously, is recognizing that some of these cytokines are actually incredibly short-lived. And Mm -hmm. so from a chemical measuring perspective, they can be quite difficult to measure and monitor. So we'll talk about the ones that often find themselves on panels, and we'll talk about a few companies that have put together cytokine panels that we can take a look at. But ultimately, obtaining and monitoring cytokine concentrations can be really useful in assessing immune function and response, assessment of risk of developing secondary disease, tumor markers for leukemia, lymphoma, breast cancer, monitoring progression of diseases such as AIDS, inflammatory processes, rheumatoid arthritis, and that sort of thing. And then also monitoring cytokine or anti-cytokine therapy. We'll end up this discussion by looking at how can we use our tools, the tools that we have as functional medicine, nutritional and naturopathic specialists to be able to mitigate some of this inflammatory response. So Beth, why don't you kind of like walk us through the pro-inflammatory cytokines that we can measure versus the anti-inflammatory cytokines? Yeah, I want to note too, especially the first one on the list, the IL-6 is generally thought of as a pro-inflammatory cytokine, but it really does also have anti-inflammatory actions. And it all seems to depend on the type of signaling and the receptors. So IL-6, you know, pro-inflammatory, but it also has an anti-inflammatory role. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Interferon gamma would be a pro-inflammatory marker, IL-1B, IL-17, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And then again, like you spoke about different inflammatory proteins, and then keeping an eye out on certain enzymes that would increase in an inflammatory state, including SOD. So the anti-inflammatory, and of course, IL-6 does end up in that category. And maybe we can talk about this a little bit later. It'll be in the blog post that you don't want to shut down all IL-6 because you would shut down it. Yeah, just like the prostaglandins. Don't shut down all prostaglandins because look what happened with biops, right? So IL-6 can be anti-inflammatory. IL-4, IL-10 seems to be used more commonly. And then IL-1RA. And again, the receptors are very important in what happens when IL-6 has this activity. So that's something we can, you know, again, it's covered in the blog post later on. Okay. So we talked a little bit about laboratory assay panels. We're going to mention a few companies. We're not sponsored by them. We have no financial relationship with them. We're just, these are companies that are out there and doing pretty good work in terms of bringing awareness to the types of cytokines that can be measured. 
But if you are looking at Quest or LabCorp, or we'll mention Life Extension, they, they mm-hmm. are, I believe, a LabCorp wholesaler, but I think they might also have access to other laboratories as well. Mm-hmm. So here are some of the cytokines that are going to appear on various panels. So we're going to have tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-2, interleukin-2 receptor, that's the CD25, soluble. You're going to see a whole load of different interleukins. You're going to see interleukin-12, 4, 5, 10, 13. 17, <laughs> 1 beta, 6, and 8, and then also one that Beth mentioned is interferon gamma. So obviously, you're not going to measure all of those. So we need to kind of boil these down to what are the most commonly monitored cytokines. So if we were going to look at that whole big list, I think the ones that probably we'd want to pay most attention to, interleukin 1 beta, interleukin 6, which you mentioned, is mostly pro-inflammatory, but also has an anti-inflammatory component as well, uh, interleukin 8, and then one that I think most people are probably more familiar with is tumor necrosis factor alpha. And those are, these are all for monitoring chronic inflammation. So, but can you tell us a little bit about the life extension panel? We'll talk about a few panels that people have put together, but do you feel like that's a pretty good place to start with the four biomarkers that they're checking? I do think so. I might add IL-10 to that now, depending on mm-hmm. what disease state a practitioner is working with, because again, the ratio of IL-6 to IL-10 can tell us a lot. But again, with this life extension panel with the four markers, you know, they talk a little bit about each of those markers and when you might look for them. So interleukin 1 beta uh, was found to be a key mediator of the inflammatory response to physical stress, which we forget. You get inflammation. If somebody overtrains, they get inflammation. So you might see the IL-1B increase. Higher levels were also associated with anxiety, panic disorders, and cardiovascular risk. And I thought that was really interesting and a really good reason to almost use that as a screening interleukin, you know, even taking into account that it's hard to measure interleukins when they're short-lived or if they're in the test tube for too long, they'll actually interact with other interleukins. But anyhow, that seems to be something that can be looked at in terms of mental health, because we know brain inflammation leads to anxiety, panic disorders, depression, things like that. So and cardiovascular risk, the the IL-1B can be used for. And the IL-6, of course, when we're looking for inflammation, if you know it's an inflammatory state, well, you can probably guess that the elevated IL-6 is associated with inflammation. And it can happen with chronic infections, autoimmune disorders, certain cancers, and even Alzheimer's disease. And there were some good markers and cutoffs for recognizing the role of inflammation in Alzheimer's disease. And then interleukin-8, the elevated levels were associated with rheumatoid arthritis, tumor development, and hepatitis C. So of course, like any of these, one interleukin or cytokine isn't going to be really diagnostic for one condition, right? And so many cells can make them, and so many diseases have them as a characteristic. So again, we're always looking at the whole clinical picture. This isn't diagnostic. And then the TNF-alpha, it's a growth factor for immune cells in osteoclasts. And those are the cells, of course, that break down bone could be elevated in chronic infections, certain cancers, and again, in hepatitis C. So that four marker panel is nice. I would throw IL-10 in too, if the lab that you're working with does IL-10, and then you could take a look at the ratio and see if it fits into any of the ratios that we talk about in the blog. We'll talk about the ratio in a few minutes as well. I think one of the interesting things when we're looking at these panels, you know, what we talk about in the blog post as well is establishing normal ranges for serum cytokines. Uh, uh-huh. As you pointed out, it's an elusive endeavor. <laughs> we're not talking about optimal ranges here. We're just talking about standard normal ranges. Exactly. Uh, because obviously the clinical uses of these cytokines, and then there's also research. And uh-huh. so research sometimes has a different purview in some ways. But as research is progressing, 
guidelines for cytokine evaluation are emerging through normal versus abnormal ranges. I thought that's an interesting concept. <laughs> I mean, we talk about optimal versus normal. Now we've mm-hmm. got optimal versus normal versus abnormal. Right. It's more difficult to determine with certainty due to the dynamic nature of the cytokine response. Yeah. So there are a number of variables that can affect the cytokine milieu. Things such as activating signals, cellular targets, individual characteristics of the patient themselves, what's their stress levels like, physical or emotional or even metabolic, fitness, mm-hmm. are they fed versus non-fed? So you kind of have to dive into the research to kind of look and see all of that type of information. So what was your sort of take home when you look at these panels that have been put out by companies like Life Extensions and what we talked a little bit about, Mayo Clinic and things like that? What were your thoughts around the cutoff values that they're using? Well, I mean, I was almost discouraged when I read how much variable there can be and the handling of the specimen is so important and you want to make sure you, first of all, have a good specimen and a good result. But I was, yeah, a little bit dismayed that it was hard to pin down a range, but I did find some cutoff values that were useful. And it, you know, they found a cutoff value for IL-13 of 9.315 picograms per ml had 100% sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing Alzheimer's. And I thought that was interesting. It tended to be very, very low. It's anti-inflammatory, IL-13, and was very low in Alzheimer's patients compared to controls. It was 9 to 18 times lower in Alzheimer's compared to controls. So they did come up with a nice cutoff value there. So again, if you did an IL-13 on someone that's healthy and no risk of Alzheimer's and no signs of Alzheimer's, and it happened to be low, you'd never turn around and diagnose that person with Alzheimer's. Yeah. So again, it's always part of the clinical picture. So I was glad to see they came up at least with some that were pretty specific diseases, including lupus nephritis. They had some cutoff levels if someone has clients with that. But again, I just had to realize that, you know what, all these panels, they they aren't completely conclusive. And like anything, just a piece of the puzzle. And that has to be kept in mind. Again, just looking at was your patient fed or not fed? What's their metabolic state? What's their fitness state? Did they have some injury? You know, what if they were hard workout the day before or the day of their blood draw? And, you know, they have some physical stress and injury that might show up and you think something else is going on with them because of an elevated cytokine level. So it's all piece of the puzzle. So if we look at those five cytokines that we talked about earlier, and we were adding an IL-10 to that list. So the Mayo Clinic puts out a 13 cytokine panel. We don't need to go through all of the ranges that they're proposing. But I'd like to touch in on, like, for instance, their range for tumor necrosis factor alpha was 7.2 picograms per mil or less. And let's jump interleukin 10, 2.8 picograms per mil or less. Um, interleukin 1 beta, 6.7 picograms per mil or less. And then interleukin 6, 2.0 picomils or less. What am I missing out here? Uh, interleukin 8. Interleukin-8, three picograms per mil or less. I guess from our perspective, if we're looking at measuring these on our patients on a regular basis, what do you think would be the ideal state of that patient prior to getting testing that you feel would give the most value to these results from a clinical perspective? Um, obviously, being, well, you definitely, know, they fed or non-fed, yeah, making sure they yeah. haven't had a, you know, played a, a game of football the night before. Yes, <laughs> Well, I'm going to say you want to observe them in their natural habitat. <laughs> <laughs> right. So maybe don't change much of anything. Maybe don't let them do a hard work ahead of time. But I wouldn't have them change a lot drastically right. months or weeks before the blood test because 
you want again observe them in the natural habitat what is going on on their day-to-day -day life and the day-to-day -day basis and again this is little pieces of the puzzle you got to put together and i wanted to just point out with interleukin 10 was you know the male clinic wanted to see it low low and then i had found you'll see in the blog there were some other labs that say no 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 we want it higher because it's an anti-inflammatory cytokine so there you have almost a different kind of philosophy sometimes labs as you know measure things differently but they are saying, which makes sense, well, IL-10 is anti-inflammatory and it has to go up to any great extent, that must mean that inflammation is present. So that's a little bit of a dichotomy with that one. Like, wouldn't you want it high because it's anti-inflammatory? But maybe not because, you know, like you want a drug that barks, but you want him barking all the time? You know, what does it tell you if he's barking all the time? You don't know if there's real danger. Right. So with the IL-10, you have to take that kind of with a grain of salt. So it's at least something to go by. And if you did the Mayo panel, you would go by their ranges. And now that, as we know, laboratories have their own ranges. And sometimes you have to just kind of interpret the information you have according to the measuring stick that they used. So that got a little frustrating to see that there are, as we know, there are different standard ranges out there. We know there are different optimal ranges. So it's really almost the same with interleukin research that I have found. Fascinating. Well, let's just cover quickly the optimal takeaways. So our takeaways from a focus on the cytokines and the Beth, you can kind of jump in and give us a little taste of the IL-6 to IL-10 ratio, if you don't mind, that would mm -hmm. be awesome. So these are kind of our takeaways from the focus on cytokines. And some of this will be stuff that we've covered in this particular section, some in the section prior. So remembering that cytokines are messages that are produced by and have an effect on a wide range of cells. Many cytokines interact with each other. I thought it was interesting that you pointed out that if, if the blood is sitting around in the test tube prior to being tested for too long, those cytokines can actually interact with each other and you can get mm -hmm. different, different uh, output. They can have pro and anti-inflammatory effects. And, and Beth obviously went through those a few moments ago and facilitate immune function and allergic responses. And I think this next point here, when we talk about the cytokine storm being so prevalent, so top of mind right now with COVID-19, mm -hmm. prolonged and unbridled inflammation can lead to a cytokine storm. So that's very important to look at. Remembering mm -hmm. that elevated pro-inflammatory cytokines correlate very well with ARDS and COVID-19, but also many cytokines are short-lived and acute measurement and interpretation can be difficult. So I think the caveat is keep all of that in mind when if you are choosing to run cytokine panels and paying attention to the state of the patient prior to doing that, and then also interpret through the lens of the panel that you're actually looking at. Beth, talk a little bit about the ratio of IL-6 to IL-10. I thought this was really interesting stuff. This could be a whole paper. Like I said, any subject yeah. that we look at could be an entire dissertation. But with this one, I thought it was really interesting, especially with depression, that they actually came out with some cutoff levels. So we know depression is a pro-inflammatory disorder. And just stop right there and make sure that every physician working with a patient with depression understands that so you can take anti-inflammatory measures. So depression is pro-inflammatory, inflammation of the brain. And low IL-10 and significantly higher IL-6 to IL-10 ratio was observed in depressed patients, a median of 2.93 for depressed patients versus 1.08 in the controls. Mm. So that was, was significant. You can take a look at those. If you have someone with depression, look at all the inflammatory markers, but using the IL-6 IL-10 ratio was very useful. A meta-analysis of 11 studies that totaled 101 plus thousand participants revealed a 1.4 increase in the likelihood of depression or depressive symptoms for those on a pro-inflammatory versus an anti-inflammatory diet, the anti-inflammatory diet being a Mediterranean-style diet. 
So just that, and that's a meta-analysis. You know, it's hard to get enough information that matches up to have a good meta-analysis, but they did find that 1.4 increased likelihood of depression just by looking at their diet, what they're on. Also, children hospitalized with pneumonia for the IL-6 to IL-10 ratio, they used that and actually determined severity and prolongation of disease in those children. It's also used in trauma patients. So evaluation of the IL-6 to IL-10 ratio is used to project the severity of injury in trauma patients. And an early IL-6 to IL-10 ratio of 3.11 correlated significantly with the severity of injury in the Apache scores. So these the Apache score to see how basically a patient in the ICU is to get worse and die, basically, put it simply. So the mm. IL-6 to IL-10 ratio, yes, is coming into its own. And it is part of the Dublin-Boston score they're using for COVID-19 patients. So that's becoming more and more prevalent now. A lot more biomarkers are recognized, you know, biomarkers that correlate with severe COVID. So it's even useful in that scenario, which seems to be a bit prolonged <laughs> when mm. COVID-19 will be over. Well, like I said, by the time we get through this, I hope it's not COVID-23. So hopefully this information, and I really do feel so strongly that people have got to be on a good anti-inflammatory diet, have their vitamin D levels up, that helps keep inflammation down, keep their vitamin C levels up, their antioxidant levels to really fend off COVID-19 because it's the people that don't have a good diet and end up obese and inflamed with diabetes and heart disease that have the most severe COVID and are more likely to die from it. So let's keep people healthy, you know, before they get sick. That's yeah. always been kind of my drive. So I had to mention that. <laughs> well, yeah, awesome. So we're going to be sorry to keep hopping on about our blog mm -hmm. post, but obviously there's so much stuff that we look at when Beth puts these presentations together for us in the podcast. So if you're interested in kind of diving into some of these topics, we are posting blog posts of, of individual uh, content pieces. Uh, go to optimaldx.com and then look at our blog. You can actually subscribe to uh, getting updates on a weekly basis when new blog posts are put together. And so we'll be having some pretty detailed blog posts on IL-6, IL-10, mm -hmm. and then the ratio itself, looking at some of the serum ranges and then the cutoffs. So I think that's really, really important information. Let's dive now, Beth, into the resolution and intervention you talked about just now, I thought that was super important, is the concept of, of having an anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could spend the rest of our time to finish out the podcast Great. today. Looking at anti-inflammatory diets, as a nutritionist, you probably work probably all the time on the anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about kind of your thoughts around it. Is this something that we should be focusing on as a daily diet or is it more of an mm -hmm. intervention type of diet? I know we talked about this in naturopathic medicine as more sort of an intervention type of thing. So if someone is appearing to be more inflamed, we move them onto an anti-inflammatory diet for two to three months. I think one of the most important things is helping people recognize the way that they feel before and after. Mm -hmm. Yes. Being on an anti-inflammatory diet, when you're increasing your anti-inflammatory foods and decreasing your pro-inflammatory foods, and we'll go through these in a few moments, there is going to be subjective change that the patient mm -hmm. is going to notice. So anyway, give me your thoughts on it. I say right off the bat, this has got to be a lifestyle. I wouldn't yeah. want people, you know, use it as an intervention to start with, but make it a habit because we know that a pro-inflammatory diet makes you sick. You know, my motto is nutrition is your best health insurance, you know, stay healthy, yeah, don't yeah. get sick. So I would say that it's so important to make an anti-inflammatory, if we have to label it that way, a lifestyle change. And I always tell people, listen, if 80% of your diet's really good, you know, in this category, 
20% can probably be in the pro-inflammatory category. And that gives people a little bit of leeway. You know, I was like, well, you can have five grapes and four ounces of wine every night. I can, yeah, you can have that. Let's just, you know, there's a reason you can't. So, you know, the things that we think of as no-nos on certain quote-unquote diets really should be incorporated into a lifestyle like this because then you just have the, the healthy food your body needs to thrive, but then you have the psychologically satisfying 20% that's not so healthy. So, I mean, the anti-inflammatory too, if you just give people this list of foods and say, listen, go out, eat like this for a month, just choose from the left-hand column. And it's always, always, always whole fresh foods instead of processed. Ideally, and again, 80% whole fresh foods, abundance of fruits and vegetables. I can't stress that enough. So it's not just an anti-inflammatory diet that highlights that, but the dietary approaches to stop hypertension, you know, the boring government diet works. And it's an abundance of fresh fruits and veggies, a Mediterranean style diet, fresh fruits and veggies at least seven to nine servings a day. And even the health organization has said to bump up your fruit and vegetable intake during COVID to reduce your risk to seven to nine servings a day. So we even have, you know, an authoritative recommendation for this. You know, I think I'm authoritative too, but this comes <laughs> from the top. And of course we forget include leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, citrus fruits, certain types of fruits and veggies. You know, the old 12 basic food groups used to call out, make sure you have dark leafy greens and make sure you have a yellow or orange, make sure you have citrus. They used to tell you what types of fruits and veggies and they really don't anymore. So I remind people, you know, make sure you got dark leafy greens, cruciferous and citrus fruit, berries I would throw into that must have column too. And of course, minimize refined carbohydrates. And if somebody, you know, like white bread, cookies, cake, pastry, most candies, except for really good healthy candy, because you can make that. Sweetened beverages. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's no need for those. You can get a nice flavored seltzer that has no sweetener in it, but is very refreshing. And then just moderate even amounts of whole grain products because they can be a bit pro-inflammatory if you have your whole diet based on even whole grains. So again, you want a donut a couple of times a week. You have one donut. That one donut won't kill you. But the stress of worrying about it will, or the wrath of your, you know, some people are so puritan about their diet. It's almost stressful. So I never want people to be purists, I should say. So don't worry, you know, it's more stress when you're trying to avoid things 100% than just having it once in a while, 20% of the time. Lean protein sources, most people I see do not get enough protein. So enough protein is always important. Grass-fed beef is ideal if you're going to be eating beef. Uh, Chicken, seafood, omega-3 eggs, seafood that's low in mercury at least three times a week is anti-inflammatory. If people won't eat seafood, that's when I'll put them on purified fish oil capsules. And, you know, you can do the alpha linolenic from plant sources, but some people don't convert those into the fish, the EPA, DHA that we get from fish. So I like to see people, if they're willing to go right on the purified fish oil, if they won't eat seafood. Healthy fats, you know, people got so paranoid about not eating fat and people overeat fat, but healthy fats are so important. Nuts and seeds, especially nuts avocados, olives, olive oil, some organic grass-fed butter. When it's grass-fed, there'll be omega-3 in it. So when the cow is grass-fed, it'll pass on the omega-3s in the butter, in the milk. So that's important. Limited intake of omega-6 fats, although we need some. Alpha-linoleic is an essential omega-6. You need some. Limited total saturated fat, especially animal-based fats, especially non-organic animal-based fats. And again, if you can just avoid trans fats from industrial sources, which is most of your commercial margarines and cakes and snacks that are deep fried or foods that are deep fried, they're full of trans fats. 
that's one of the biggest enemies when you talk right. about something in the diet. And then plenty of herbs and spices. We leave that out. Anti-inflammatory sources, turmeric, ginger, rosemary, curry blends, all of them, all your herbs too. Very, very important to include those fresh herbs in a salad, you know, other herbs in cooking. So that's the basis of the anti-inflammatory. You don't have to label it so much as remember which foods to include in the diet. And then just remember what to minimize. I don't want to demonize foods, but if people are living on junk food, they'll bet you their brain is inflamed. And when their brain is inflamed, they can't think straight. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember one of the adages that one of my professors taught me when I was back in naturopathic medical school. He was like saying, you know, there's so much of a drive to take things away from people. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to point to something that you mentioned, which I think is really good. It's like, find a substitution. So like, for instance, you said, try not to do sweetened beverages, substitute mm-hmm. with a non-sweetened fruit-based seltzer. Refreshing, mm-hmm. nice refreshing mm-hmm. drink is going to give you the mm-hmm. same mouthfeel. Those are the things that we should remember as practitioners. Yep. It's like, a lot of times people are very associated with the foods that they eat. Yes, so attached. <laughs> with, <laughs> right? If people right. want to eat steak, educate them about grass-fed versus grass-range-fed steak. And yes, it's going to be more expensive, but you say to them, hey, listen, you're not going to be eating this every day. Have it once a month. Um, Almost like it's a supplement, right? It's a B12 Mm -hmm. and iron injection. But talk about- Throw in a salad. A salad's protective, literally, when you eat a lot of meat and a lot of oxidative foods and very acid-forming foods, super salad can be protective on top of that salad. You know, we always talked about the SAD or the standard American diet. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have exported that diet across the, the, the oh. world. But really what you talked about was the Western-style diet, and I thought mm-hmm. this was pretty interesting. So research that a Western-style diet is associated with non-communicable chronic disease and meta-inflammation, which is sort of metabolic inflammation, mm-hmm. accompanied by a variety of factors related to suboptimal health. So these are really important to pay attention to. Abdominal obesity, air pollution exposure, decreased HDL cholesterol, obviously that's something that we can measure, mm-hmm. uh, dysbiosis, elevated stress levels, hyperglycemia, again, you know, with our functional health reports, we can take a look at that. Mm-hmm. Hypertension, we should absolutely be measuring blood pressure on each and every patient and client that walks into our room. And hypertriglyceridemia, again, something that we can measure, and insulin resistance. If you, insulin resistance, we did, a, I thought, was a really great series of blog posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm a podcast on that. And then we had uh, Dr. Brad Rackman as a guest on our last podcast talking about HOMA and insulin resistance. So huge, huge topic for us to pay attention to. You know, when you're going through those kind of leafy vegetables and the green foods and the red foods, Mm -hmm. it reminded me of something that my mom raised me sort of naturopathically, you know, had whole grain breads and all of our foods were home cooked. You know, she really adopted this kind of rainbow diet concept. And so we would have pretty much every meal she would look at and make sure that it had color in it. Yes. And I remember I was staying with her a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. She's in England right now. And she had a book on her dining room table called The Rainbow Diet. And it was all about colorful (laughs) foods. And it had like purple foods and red foods and yellow foods. So it was super important. It's like, you know, don't avoid the colorful fruits and vegetables in the organic fruits and veg section. They are super, super helpful for you. We're drawn to them for a reason. I really believe that, you know, the bright colors in nature, the the colors themselves are phytochemicals or phytonutrients and they're healthy for us. And they know that when they color like kids cereals, those bright colors, they're drawn to them naturally. So I think that's a part of it. And that's pretty tricky. They tricked us. (laughs) I mean, I remember I was nine years old when I first came to the States to stay with some family friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, slightly jet lags coming down for breakfast. 
and seeing my first box of Lucky Charms. And I was just horrified. Oh, good. I thought you were excited. Um, I'm sure I ate some and, uh, you know, Captain Crunch and all that. I mean, oh. as a nine-year-old, you know, it was a taste extravaganza, but ultimately I recognized, you know, what damage that does to our kids' health. Talk about this dietary inflammatory index. Mm-hmm. You could wrap up by sort of talking a little bit about that. Is there some take-homes that you want to bring to mind? About? Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. It's in-depth. You can go actually, you know, track down the original research, but they actually put together, they took 45 foods, and they measured them for their inflammatory potential based on these well-known inflammatory markers that we're talking right, the ones about. ones we just talked about, right? Yeah, yeah. IL-1B, IL-4, IL-6, IL-10, TNF-alpha, and CRP. And what they did was they found a pro-inflammatory diet was associated with elevated serum levels of HSCRP, especially IL-6 and TNF-alpha. And when they did all of the valuation and math, let's say, they found the dietary inflammatory index scores, like a fast food diet had a plus 4.07, so highly inflammatory. The Mediterranean diet was a negative 3.96, and then a macrobiotic diet, mostly veggies and brown rice, is 5.54, a negative 5.54. So it really panned out that, well, if you consume these anti-inflammatory foods and avoid the pro-inflammatory foods, you can literally change your inflammatory cytokine profile. So I thought that was fascinating. I'm glad that they did that. There's extra, there's lots of research out there on it. I included, of course, my resources and people I recommend that they would kind of chase that down and investigate it even further. But again, keep it simple. You know, it's whole foods, foods that grow out of the ground, organic whenever you can get them. You know, you can keep it that easy. And then I tell people, listen, if it walks, swims, or flies, right? So the animal-based foods, they walk, swim, or they fly. If you can go organic with those, you want to, because the bigger the animal, especially you have this bioaccumulation of toxins and pesticides, you know, now they find out there's a certain herbicide that is linked closely to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So if an animal is concentrating those toxins and pesticides, especially in their fat tissue, and then you eat that animal, you're getting really a double or triple dose. So super, super important that if it walks, swims, or flies, try to go organic with those products. And then, of course, things that grow out of the ground, if you can get them organic, that's ideal as well. I thought your comments here about herbs and spices are so relevant. I'll talk a little bit about this. As somebody who gravitates more towards Southeast Asian cooking personally mm-hmm. and Indian food, obviously very rich history and spices and fresh herbs and things like that. They were valuable. Spices Absolutely, were so valuable. Yeah, not, not only are they valuable for your health, but they also make the food taste good. It has that sort of uh-huh. real umami kind of flavor to it. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, when you come back to eating an American restaurant, you realize that boy, the only way that they can really make food taste good is to put tons of fat and salt on it. The studies have been conducted looking at an LPS-stimulated macrophage model, revealing that various herbs, spices, and fruits really did exhibit anti-inflammatory effects. And what they did was they reduced interleukin-6, tissue necrosis factor, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and enhanced that IL-10 production and also by reducing COX-2 as well. Okay. So I thought it was interesting, I'm gonna read some of these out to you. The most significant effects of these tests have been seen with things that mm-hmm. are like allspice, basil, mm-hmm. bay leaves, black pepper, chili pepper, licorice, nutmeg, oregano, or we call it in England, oregano, sage and thyme. I also have to put basil out there. We call it basil, not basil. Oh, I, miss uh, basil. <laughs> I see it, there, yes, sir. Yeah, right. So increasing the intakes of those foods rich in anti-inflammatory uh, compounds, so it's kind of interesting to me. It's like when we talk about nutmeg and cinnamon, things like that. 
the one time of year when those become really popular is right around Thanksgiving and Christmas. Probably maybe the time when we actually probably need them more. Ways with coming in. But it is interesting that these not only reduce the risk of cancer, but also neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And obviously, one of the most important anti-inflammatory, quote unquote, spices that we look at is curcumin or turmeric. Yes. So I think everyone is aware of that. You just look at the infomercials now for these uh, turmeric extracts and things like that. But they may have an effect by enhancing IL-10 action, also helping scavenge free radicals, enhancing antioxidant activity and influence signaling pathways. So Mm -hmm. really, really cool. I want to say too that it can be, I want to just remind people, it can be easy to incorporate these in. Like the curcumin is in something, you can get a golden milk powder, they call it. Yeah, and you can add that to things. You can add it to a smoothie, you can add it to your oatmeal, you can add cinnamon to things. You just have to remember how to incorporate it in. It's easy to do. The caveat here though is don't put them into things like cookies. I mean, obviously put them into things like cookies if you want to eat them, but don't make that <laughs> the only not? source, <laughs> right? Wonderful peanut sauces which yeah. have, you know, a lot of chilies and cinnamon and things like that. Human, if you're making Indian dal or, or mm-hmm. things, it's not that difficult to put a couple of teaspoons while your lentils are cooking. Mm-hmm. Adds that full Just a habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's finish up a little bit. I thought it was kind of interesting you put some information about natural supplements. You know, we always look at these supplements and think, oh, you know, I'm going to boost my immunity. Just kind of curious, you found some research around echinacea and garlic and things like that. Is those things that we should be paying attention to to kind of boost our immunity, or is that sort of a false concept? No, it seemed like that, again, this could be a whole nother paper, but it did seem there was some research on that, and it kills me to just do a paragraph or two of all yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But in this particular research, the echinacea, garlic extracts, astragalus, and andrographis were found to support the immune system. And so again, you want to use those before getting sick. You know, you don't want to enhance your immune response if it's already gone full-blown cytokine storm. (laughs) So this is the way to boost your immune system prior to getting sick with something. And again, that would be judiciously done. And if somebody's going to go on to a special supplement they've never been on before, I'd like to do, make sure there's no interactions with any medication that they might be on or have them introduce something and maybe check to make sure they don't have an allergic response. But those four specific things, and I've seen them in a lot of different immune supplements, you want to always pick a good company. You know when they say what they're putting in there or they put in there. But those, the echinacea, the garlic, the astragalus, and the andrographis did seem to support immunity. So it's a good time to do it. And really not meant for long-term and forever, right. but you know to be used acutely really in the preventative stages. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Beth, thank you so much for putting together such incredible information for us. Obviously, the focus of this podcast is inflammation with a focus on cytokines. We mm-hmm. could have done inflammation in general. We'd be here, you know, until uh, 2022. <laughs> but anyways, here's sort of a little wrap up for our optimal takeaways. Inflammation is associated with a wide variety of acute and chronic diseases. It's an underlying factor in several diseases, including heart disease, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, neurodegenerative diseases, autoimmune diseases, depression, obesity, and of course, our friend here, COVID-19, and any disease that ends in itis. So that's always a good one to look at. Itis basically means inflammation. So hepatitis means inflammation of Mm -hmm. So yeah, something to think about. Inflammation is beneficial. So I think that's the part that we wanted to take from message really is, yes, inflammation is quote unquote bad, but it's also very beneficial. It's helpful in early during injuries and infections, but chronic prolonged inflammation, which a lot of our patients are contending with, damages tissues and promotes chronic disease. 
And in our topic here that we discussed with Beth, we're looking at select biomarkers can help monitor inflammation. But there are many variables that can affect concentrations and obviously things that we talked about about that as well. So monitoring IL-1B, IL-6, IL-8, IL-10, and tissue necrosis or tumor necrosis factor alpha is being integrated into clinical evaluations of inflammatory diseases. We talked about the Mayo Clinic having a panel of cytokines and also life extension, and I'm sure other lab companies are as well. Cytokine storm prolonged immunoparalysis can have fatal effects. It's important. And as we forgot to say, when it calms the storm too much and it paralyzes your immune system, yeah. that can be deadly too. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we're, we're seeing that obviously all over the COVID. place with COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's important to monitor the literature for updated information. Again, please go over to optimaldx.com. We'll have a whole series of blogs and Beth puts in a ton of references and research. So stay updated on the research. Mm. It changes a lot. Come back to Optimal DX. I'm sure we'll have updates. And Beth, finish up here with a little take-homes on the resolution prevention intervention. Yeah, you know, and again, number one, the healthy, whole food, plant-based diet should be a lifestyle, not just a quick intervention. And then people go back to their old kind of negative habits. An active lifestyle, you know, we have a body that's meant to move and that we should do that, be active and do yoga and stretching and walking, et cetera. If you can, minimize exposure to toxins, pesticides, Pollution, radiation, and oxidation, those are all inflammatory. So we're always fighting inflammation or pro-inflammatory compounds in our environment. Stress management is super important. And then across the dietary components that they do have both pro and inflammatory potential, teach your clients the basic anti-inflammatory foods to start with, introduce those in and ask them to minimize the pro-inflammatory foods. The Western style diet as it is now, I'm going to say is literally killing people. Mm. It actually does promote chronic disease and people can't come out the other end of that a lot of times. And that the healthy diet would be a Mediterranean style diet, rich in fruits and veggies, olive oil, omega-3 fats. And again, regular exercise and moderate calorie restriction might even enhance those effects of an anti-inflammatory diet. Great. Beth, thanks again for providing us with such great information. For those of you that are listening and want to learn more about what we do at Optimal DX, come over to OptimalDX.com. Like I said, subscribe to our blog. We've got biomarker guides. We've got tons of information on blood chemistry analysis and biomarkers and how we can use those to help assess and see where our patients are on this continuum of health. I think that's one of the things to remember is that you don't wake up one morning with a disease. It's a Mm -hmm. continuum process that happens. It may be Mm -hmm. silent. And that's the whole point of being able to look deeper under the hood, so to speak, by looking at biomarkers, looking at them collectively and looking at them singly to give us indications of where someone is on the spectrum of optimal health, dysfunction, and disease. So again, optimaldx.com. Beth, thanks so much very very much for joining Mm. us again. And next topic, we'll be covering endothelial dysfunction Mm. uh, or into the uh, cardiovascular world. So do join us for that. Thanks so much, Beth. Thank you. Take care. All right, this is Dr. Dick and Weatherby. Thank you so much from OptimalDX.com and the ODX podcast. Stay optimal out there. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for our presentation today. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to Optimal, the podcast. Again, my name is Dr. Dick and Weatherby. If you're interested in subscribing to the podcast, we are on Apple, Google, and Spotify. So do please go over and subscribe. If you want to learn more about what we do at OptimalDX, want to come over and watch a video of this presentation, read the transcript, do come on over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. 
and we have a ton of great content and a ton of resources for you. So again, Dr. Dick and Weatherby from Optimal DX, thanking you so much for tuning in today. And we look forward to sharing more great information on Optimal, the podcast. All right, take care. Bye-bye.